We're continuing in Nehemiah. If you need a Bible, there's some back there on the Connect cart. And if you get one of those, it's on page 226. It's also printed on page 7 in your bulletin. <clears throat> so uh, we're going to read the last line of chapter 1 and, uh, and then the first eight verses of chapter 2. Uh, this is God's never-changing word. Let, it, let us all give it our attention. Uh, now I was cupbearer to the king. In the year of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not the, my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the walls of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We are grateful that you've given us your word. Where would we be without it? We would have no idea what you're like, about salvation, about Christ, about the history of redemption, about this story of Nehemiah this great man of prayer and man of faith and courage. Lord, I pray that you would use this passage for the good of my soul, for the good of their souls. Lord, I know that you are about your work in my life and theirs, and I know that you use your word fundamentally for the purpose of transforming us, and so I pray that you would do so. Lord, by your Spirit, through my words, may they be yours, and may your Spirit move in them. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Does your life require faith? Think about that question. Does your life require faith? I don't know if you're like me, but you probably already have every type of insurance. Life insurance, health insurance, car insurance, house insurance. You know, just to make sure in case anything happens in any of those spheres, you'll be okay. Uh, your uh, savings is in an FDIC insured account. All your retirement it's probably diversified, and uh, so it's in a whole, it's mutual funds, so it, it, uh, it makes it less um, impacted by any one company's rise or fall. Less risk, this is good. Does our life require any faith? You pray prayers for our daily bread, but your pantry is full of food and your fridge is full of food. Does your life require faith? Well, there's some other ways to avoid um, risk. 
um, don't have too many kids. They cost lots of money, and you'll increase your risk. Don't share the gospel or talk about God with your neighbors or friends. That, too, will create some risks. Don't give too much money to the Lord's work because you might not have enough for all the things you want to do. Don't go to seminary. It costs a lot of money, and it might disrupt your career. Don't face the marriage struggles that you have. They will create tensions if you do that. Does your life actually require any faith? It's interesting to think, isn't it? There's so many things, decisions we make, if you turn one way, it will, it will require faith. God, if I'm to raise these children, you're going to have to help me. If I'm to do these things I think you're calling me to do, it will require faith. And so many decisions we make are the direction of not requiring faith. Now, of course, you can do foolish things. We aren't talking about that. There's a great verse uh, in Proverbs 22:13. It says, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Okay, what that verse means is that if you just stay inside all the time, you'll never get in a car accident nor an airplane accident. You'll never, you'll avoid all kind of risk if you just hide as a hermit. That's what the verse is saying. They had lions in that day in Israel. And so they, this was a way, this was a sluggard says. You can avoid risk by just avoiding all kind of stuff that God might call you to. So we're talking not about just adrenaline rushes or um, risk for earthly treasure, right? Invest in this stock and, and you might make a bunch of money. We're talking about advancing God's kingdom. Of course, this is what Nehemiah is doing. How would Nehemiah answer that question? Does your life require faith? He would say, yes, absolutely. I take my life in my own hands, as we'll read today. And so that's what we're looking at. But we as a church, I don't have to talk to you about taking risk. You came to this church. This is a pretty risky endeavor. You came to a church plant. We meet in a middle school. We don't even have a building. We aren't even particularized. In some sense, we aren't even a real church. We, aren't, we don't have our own leadership. We aren't internally funded. But we have made this crazy plan this year to particularize that through your giving, we're going to pay all of our own bills by the end of the year. That we're going to raise up men from among us to be elders and deacons. We'd be self-ruled by the end of 2024. That requires faith. So I don't, I'm preaching to the choir here because you came to this church. Your life does require faith, at least in this aspect of it you're here. But let's look how Nehemiah's life required faith. Look at page 7. You see the outline. It says a life of prayer requires faith. Courageous initiative requires faith. And then finally, giving God all the glory requires faith. Let's begin with that first one. A life of prayer requires faith. If you remember last week, I mean, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to listen to it. It introduced the series, and so it'll really help you understand where we're going in the series of Nehemiah. But if you were here, you remember we talked about how bizarre prayer is. You remember that? How bizarre prayer is. You just close your eyes and start yapping, and you're expecting the God of the universe to pay attention. Isn't that what you do every time you pray? And so this week, since I preached that, I've thought a lot about that. And just how much I take that for granted. I just, I just start talking and, and I'm expecting God to be listening. And he is. That's the great thing. That's how wild prayer is. So that's where we started last week. So we're looking again in this first point. A life of prayer requires faith. So just to review chapter 1. In case you weren't here 
I'll partially catch you up to speed. So in chapter 1, Nehemiah is cupbearer. He's in exile. All the Israelites have been kicked out of, most of them have been kicked out of Israel. And uh, he's there. His brother comes, gives him a bunch of bad news. The people in Israel, they're in Jerusalem, are in great trouble and great shame. And the wall's all torn down and it's burned by fire. So that's the bad news he gets. How does he respond? He mourns, he fasts, he prays, he weeps. Right? His heart's just broken because he really cares about the things of God. He's never been to Jerusalem, but he knows that's the place where God is worshipped. That's kind of the center of Christianity, or, not, or Judaism, the people of God. Right? And so then for four or five months, if the date's at the beginning of chapter 1, chapter 2, you get that it's sometime around there, four or five months. He's been fasting and praying to God. Now this type of fervent prayer requires faith. Why does it require faith? Well, one is no answers come. Okay, if you call me on the phone and you don't hear my voice, I've used this analogy before, how long are you going to stay on the phone before you hang up? Like you just keep talking and, and you're counting on that it's, it says it's connected, right? <clears throat> he says pretty quick, he's hanging up on me. So for four or five months, he's been pleading with God, fasting, praying, and he's got no answer. In a sense, he's still on the phone four or five months with no answer. This requires faith. He believes that God is really listening. And he's not stopping because he's not got an answer. There's another thing that's, that requires faith. His prayer is an impossible prayer. Okay, think about what he's praying. He's saying, God, do something. Israel, or Jerusalem is so torn up and, and they're all in shame and in trouble. God, do something. But then the last verse of his prayer said, give me favor with this man. Who's that one man? His boss, who happens to be the king. So yes, a cupbearer is a very high servant. He's trusted completely by the king. But he's still, at the end of the day, a servant. Servants have no rights, no right to even speak unless he's spoken to. Right? And so him to say, him to pray, this is an impossible prayer. Okay? It requires faith. To ask something that's absolutely impossible requires faith. Do your prayers require faith? Think about it for a second. The things you normally pray, do they require faith? Like I said before, your prayer for daily bread does not require faith for most of you, if not all of you. You got plenty of food in that pantry. Right? How many of your prayers are impossible prayers? Are things that Humanly speaking, just can't happen. Well, so kids, let me, let me give you some explanation. What does faith even mean? Kids, how would you explain faith to someone? Or parents, how would you explain it to your children? What is faith? It's a term we all use, but what does it mean? Uh, Hebrews 11, one is helpful. Right? What does it say? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In short, faith is trust. A popular analogy for faith is a chair or a middle school cafeteria bench. I've used this before, right? You all have faith in these benches. You're sitting on them. You have absolute confidence they're going to hold you up or you would not be sitting, right? But as I've thought about this more, I don't like this analogy all that much because you can see the bench. I think faith, the end of Hebrews 11, 1 said what? Things not seen. You see the bench, you see the chair, you see the thing that you're about to place your faith in, right? I thought of an elevator. It's not the best. You can't see the cables. You get in, you press a button. You've never been in one. It's kind of a weird experience. First time a kid's in one. Uh, so, so I thought about a trust fall. You know how does a trust fall work? You know how it works. Is anyone going to catch me? Right? And 
No, right. But a, <laughs> a trust fall is that someone is standing there. You can't see them. And so you fall back, counting on that person to really have their arms out, right? Um, maybe that's a little bit of faith, right? It's the key piece of it is confidence in something not seen. Those are two elements, a trust and something not seen. So we see this in Nehemiah. So back to my question, do all your prayers require faith? Do all your prayers require faith? Or even do any of your prayers require faith? Are you praying things consistently before God for him to do that are humanly impossible? It's a good thing to think about. Certainly Nehemiah was. Now, of course, there's a, James has several helpful verses we'll, um, I'll throw in here. James 1, 6 and 7. Uh, let him ask, but let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. Kids, have you been to the beach? The waves are just tossed to and fro by the wind. For that person must not suppose, the person that doubts when he prays, that he will receive anything from the Lord. If you ask something with no confidence the Lord's going to do it, I don't count on him doing anything. That's what the verse says. Faith is a key part. As the, as the point says, a life of prayer requires faith. Now, there's a great theological error I have to address for two seconds, and you've probably heard it, the name and claim it, right, where you just say, if you have enough faith, whatever you ask, you're going to get. Oh, you didn't get it? Sorry, you just have enough faith. You just need more faith. Now, certainly, if you haven't heard of that, it's not any good. What's wrong with it? It's according to God's will. If you ask anything according to God's will, you'll receive it. That little middle piece is a key part, right? So kids, if you ask, and you ask your parents, if you ask right now, hey, mom and dad can have an ice cream sundae on the way home from church, what are they going to say? Uh, probably not, yep. I see some head nods, no. Because it's not for your best. Your parents love to give you good gifts. It's not that they can't afford it. It's not that they aren't able to, but it wouldn't be good for you. And so God's the same. So no matter how much faith you have that God's listening, and he is, He's not going to give you something that would be destructive for you. Okay, we just had to address that. Moving on. Okay, so, and, and James, again, is helpful here. It says, James 4, 2, and 3, you do not have because you do not ask. We have to ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You want that ice cream sundae to spend on your own passions because it tastes really good. Whatever we ask according to God's will, we'll receive. Okay, so Nehemiah, back to Nehemiah, he's been fasting for four to five months. He's been praying for this impossible prayer. And so now we're, come, we're, we're finally to chapter 2. Hey, thanks for bearing with all that. Look at verse 1 and 2 of this chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, likely a festive occasion. Maybe he's in a good mood. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Now look at the next line. It doesn't say he was afraid. It doesn't say he was very afraid. He was very much afraid. The guy must have been really scared. Why? Why is he so scared? Because this is um, punishable by the death penalty to be sad in the king's presence. Why would that be? Kids, you're probably wondering, ah, why is that such a big deal? Well, the servants, their part of their job was to be cheerful to the king, particularly the guy whose, whose life, the king's life depends on it. That guy looks sad. You know, how much, how much do you trust the wine that he's handing you? Is he regretting the decision he just made to poison the king? Right? So, 
so here Nehemiah has taken his life into his own hands as he, and I don't think he meant to. Some will argue that maybe it was intentional. Probably not because he's so scared, right? So there he is, and he puts him on the spot. And as I said before, servants don't get to speak unless they're spoken to. He'd been praying this. But why, why was he sad again? Just think about that. We need to make sure we get that in our heads. It was burdened for the Lord's work. It was burdened for if a place he's never seen. It doesn't really affect him at all, but it's burdened for the Lord's work. I think this is an important takeaway from this, from one, chapter 1 and 2, that Nehemiah was burdened for the Lord's work. So I ask you this morning, are you burdened for the Lord's work? Does it really bother you that you live in a mostly pagan community? Most of Cane Bay does not know Jesus. Or wherever you live, Goose Creek, you know, wherever you are. Most of your neighbors have no hope for eternity. Does that bother you? Does it bother you that there, there aren't, this, this place isn't bursting at the seams? But if we had a football team, it'd be bursting at the seams, right? Right? The, the, it is the burdens that burden God burden us. This is why Nehemiah is sad. May it burden us like it burdened him. It should drive us to our knees. In three, about three weeks, you have an opportunity for that. What does it drive him to? To fast and to pray. We as a church are going to fast and pray on February 3rd. Because we, it really bothers us that so many of the people around us don't know Jesus. I mean, if you're in the schools, you see the things that are happening. You're on Facebook, you watch what's happening in our community. And it should break your heart. It, it does. It does mine. I hope it does yours. Nehemiah has a burden for the Lord's work. It drove him to pray. But then look at verse 3 and 4. Right? So he's scared. He put him on the spot. He says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the king, when the city, the place where my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? This is a gutsy response. You know why? Why is this a gutsy response? You know who he's poking in the eye? The king. You know who gave the order to stop the building of the temple? In Ezra chapter 4, it was the king. This same king. This same king told Ezra, sent orders there to stop. This is the most current thing that Nehemiah sat, or that, yeah, Nehemiah sat about. Yes, it was Nebuchadnezzar that destroyed everything. But then, this just recently happened. That's pretty gutsy to say to the guy that did it, hey, how could I not be sad? And basically, you made it stop. Four months of praying and fasting made him pretty bold, didn't it? So look, go on. So then how does the king respond? Does he take his head off? No, he says, the king said to me, what are you requesting? Look at the next line. So I prayed to the God of heaven. How long do you think that prayer was? Hold on a second, king, I'll be right back. I need to pray. <laughs> You're really going to lose your head. You don't want to pause too long when he says, what do you want? And so this is probably a one-second prayer. Lord, help me. Lord, help me know what to say. Right? Not, I'm sure not audible. Right? Do you pray prayers like that? There's two types of prayers in general. There's planned prayers and situational prayers. You call them proactive prayers and reactive prayers. Nehemiah, we saw in chapter 1, we talked a lot about that. He had, he had the practice of prayer. He'd been doing it. Do you have that? Do you have planned things, triggers that you pray? Many of you will pray when they eat. Usually it's somewhat perfunctory. 
The food's sitting right there. It's getting cold. You, it's not that much of a long prayer. I do it when I drive. That's just, I'm stuck in the car. Do you do it when you take a shower? Whatever your things are. While you're cutting the grass. While you're, if your work is, some parts of it are mindless, it's a great trigger. And you say like, okay, I'm going to spend this time praying. Proactive prayer. Um, a great time, if you're married, is when you go to bed. I've had that practice for a number of years. It's very good. Last thing my wife and I do is pray before we go to sleep. I pray with my kids when I put them to bed, right? Whatever it is, just find your own habits. But then, situational prayers. Hey, kids, do you think if you were to, if you were to scream across the house, help, just one word, would your mom or dad come running? Like if you were really in trouble, just one word. Do you think God is any less than your parents? Just one word. God is listening. Your parents love you. If, if you need them, they're going to come running, right? So also is our God. So he prayed to the God of heaven. God was listening. Nehemiah was both a man of prayer, planned and in the moment. I implore you, prayer must be the backbone of your life. And may it be with faith, praying for things that are impossible. We are as a church, we certainly are. It gives God great glory when his people will not just ask small things of him, but big things of him. Okay, so after four to five months of praying with no answer, we finally come to a new day, which is this, which brings us to our next point. So look, there as the passage goes on, courageous initiative requires faith. Look at verse four and five again. So he says, what are you requesting? He prayed to God of heaven. And what does he say? If it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, would you send me to Judah, to the city of, your father's, of my father's graves to rebuild it? Remember again, he's saying, king, I want you to reverse your edict. Boy, he's asking to lose his head. Over and over again. Right? He's saying, yeah, I know you told them, stop, no one do it, but hey, I'd like, could you send me and reverse that whole thing? Yeah, I, I'm guessing most kings don't reverse their edicts. He's very courageous. He asks this. So he asks to be sent. But he asks more. Look what it go on. So after that, he says, and the king, oh, with the queen sitting beside him. Why did he put that in there? Well, several possibilities. Maybe Nehemiah's won favor with the queen. The queens normally didn't sit with the king in this time. And so maybe he's in a better mood with the queen sitting beside him. Maybe she's going to whisper in his ear and say, hey, I think you should listen to Nehemiah, whatever it is. So it notes this, a more favorable situation. He says, hey, how long are you going to be gone? When will you return? He says, so please the king when I gave him a time. Okay, now what does this mean? This means for four or five months while he's been praying, what else has he been doing? He's been planning, right? How did he know what to say? Because he had been planning for God to answer his prayers. Do you ask impossible prayers? That's the first part that I asked you. But then, do you actually plan? I, I like the analogy of the um, farmer during the drought who's praying for rain and who carries his umbrella with him. Why? Because he's praying they would rain and he'll need it when it rains. Do you do that as you pray? Do you make plans? We're doing that as a church. We've made plans to particularize and it's an impossible prayer. We did that two years ago. We've seen God be faithful thus far, but he needs to be more faithful, continue to be faithful because we aren't paying all our own bills. We don't have elders yet. We're working hard, aren't we? Are we men? Men are in officer training. We're working week after week preparing to have elders and deacons that we would also be internally funded. 
there's not time for me to tell you about Esther. Remember, if you think about her story, she was in a very similar situation. She went, took her life in her own hands and went before the king. Just think about that. She too understood what it meant that she was for such a time as this. Nehemiah understood that he was in the king's court for such a time as this. Do you understand that you are in Cane Bay or Goose Creek or wherever you are for just a time as this? It's not by accident that you are where you are, working at the place you are, with the people around you, with the children that you have. None of that is by accident. It is part of redemptive history. You are a part of redemptive history. He saved you, and he has plans for you. Just like with Esther, just like with Nehemiah. I love 2 Chronicles 16.9. It says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God is looking for people who want to be sent. Remember Isaiah said, here I am, send me. Is that your heart's desire? Here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. Do you have a burden that then grows to boldness, right? His burden for the Lord's work drove him to be bold and ask for all kind of stuff. And he wasn't even done. Look what else he says. He says, give letters, so he asked to be sent. He asked for safety, and then he asked for supplies. He says, hey, the guy that, that, does, that keeps the, um, well, what's his name? He already knew the guy's name. He'd done his homework. He'd been planning for rain. He'd been planning for the Lord to answer his prayers. Asaph, he knew his name, that he would get wood. But he also said for the house he'll occupy. He is not planning, this is not going to be a two-week vacation. If you want supplies to build a house while you're there, you're going to be there a while. And indeed, he would be there a while. Look how the passage ends. I love this. And the king granted me what I asked. Those are a few words to say a big thing. He said yes to everything I wanted. He said, you can be sent, you can get letters for your safety, and you can have all the supplies you need. Wow. And look at that last line. The king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The good hand of my God. And that brings us to our, our third and final point very briefly. Giving God all the glory requires faith. That's what he's doing, isn't he? He's giving God all the glory. He didn't say, hey, my timing was perfect. Hey, it was good that I was sad that day. That worked perfectly. No, he says all of it was because of God. He gives all the credit to God. For the good hand of my God was on me. But you know what? If you want to know that, you're going to have to take some risk. If your life just works with no faith, do you really need to say that the good hand of God was upon me? No. Like you just, you worked your job and you didn't take any risk in your marriage, in your, with your neighbors, anywhere, right? Everything was just safe. The good hand, my God, was upon me. So he started with a burden and led to boldness and then it led to blessing. Oh, that we would take Risk. Oh, that we would take risks for the kingdom. That we'd be burdened for this community. That's my prayer. As we wrap up. Remember last week I started the sermon with Abraham. You remember that? I ran you from Abraham all the way up to Nehemiah. So as I end this service, I want to take you from Nehemiah forward. Okay, so think about redemptive history. It's about 445 BC. And Nehemiah and Ezra are two men, just two men, that God raises up for purpose. They're going to rebuild the temple and the wall. 
Why is that significant for redemptive history? Think about it. Why is it, why does it matter? Who cares if all the Jews are spread all over kingdom come? Why do they need to like come back? What's going to happen in Jerusalem? Anything important going to happen in Jerusalem? Think about it. 480 years later, who's going to walk those streets? You're going to need some streets to walk on. The Son of God is coming. He didn't know that. Nehemiah did not realize that he had a key part in redemptive history. How could he? The streets he would walk on. That temple he would clear. Right? You're going to have to rebuild the temple in order for Jesus to clear it. It was the end of Judaism as we knew it. A new era was coming. A new covenant was going to come. But you got to get them back. He couldn't know. All he knew was that God had laid a burden on him for the work of the Lord. There's no way you can know. There's no way that you can know what the significance of your life, your children, the people that you teach, the people that you work with, how they fit into redemptive history. But God does. And if you will but be burdened, don't make him raise up somebody else. Remember, that's what Mordecai said. If you don't do it, God's going to send somebody else. God's going to have his way. He's going to save your neighbors and your coworkers who are elect. And if it's not by you, he's going to raise up somebody else. So let it be us. Let it be us. Would we be the ones that have a burden that we may be bold for the Lord's work? In closing, I want to tell you about a guy named Dwight. He was born in 1837. He left home. Well, he stopped school at fifth grade. Kids, that's not exciting? It's not. <laughs> You'll ruin your life if you stop education at, at fifth grade. He thought it'd be a good idea. At 17, he moved to Boston to find work. Mid-1800s. His uncle gave him a job at his shoe store. On one condition, Dwight, you got to go to church. That was the condition. You want to be, if you want to be employed, you have to go to church. Okay, so he went to church. He went to Sunday school, and his teacher, Edward, took an interest in him. Edward went to the shoe store and shared the gospel with little Dwight. And Dwight accepted. Dwight became a Christian. Dwight committed that day and said, I will give my life to the Lord. Because Edward, his Sunday school teacher, from the shoe, because he came there, and the, his uncle, who's the shoe owner, made him go to the church that ended him up in that Sunday school class that he took an interest in him and came and shared the gospel with him. Well, that's meaningless to you because none of us lived in Boston in the mid-1800s. But if I gave you his full name, it might. That was Dwight Moody. He became a great preacher. Could Edward ever have known that day, <clears throat> April 21st, 1855, that that little visit to a shoe store would have such impact on so many lives? The Moody Bible Institute and all his preaching all came from a Sunday school teacher that visited a shoe store. There's no way that you can know the significance that God has planned. It says in Ephesians 2.10, I've prepared good works in advance for some other Joe to do. No, for you to do. And you and all the rest of us, God has prepared good works for you specifically to do. Don't leave them that God has to raise some up someone else. There's no way you can know the significance your life will have in redemptive history. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you so much for Nehemiah. He couldn't have known. He wouldn't know in his lifetime the significance. And we might not know either, but you do. And we want to be obedient individually, as families, as couples, and as a church. We want to be obedient. We want to have a burden, a real, genuine burden that would lead us to do crazy things like skipping eating on February 3rd. To pour out our hearts before you. We have a burden for our neighbors, our coworkers. We pray for them day by day. Lord, I pray that you would lay this burden upon us. That you would give us a boldness that comes from that burden. And then that you would bless And that we would get to see fruit individually as couples and as a church. We pray in the great name of Jesus Christ who walked those streets in Jerusalem, died outside the city for our salvation, a salvation that is freely given to all who will repent. We pray in his name. Amen.